0: Hey, everybody, hey Jordan, hey Mark. Just gonna try and add a couple more speakers in here. What's up, man? Hey, yeah, much? Um, actually, been a surprisingly busy week. Seen seen quite a few offers this week on, uh, on listings. Seems like things are actually loosening up a little bit. Um, it wouldn't surprise me actually if November was a busier month than October, based on what I'm seeing.
1: Uh, I would actually say the same in the pre-construction market yeah, and yeah, the market too. But it's, it's still. Pretty, pretty damn
0: slow, but yeah. definitely better than it was. Yeah, I mean, by no means am I trying to say that the picture is. I mean, not not that I'm I'm the kind of person that uh, that sh- that likes to sugarcoat things, but uh, but uh, it, it does just it does seem a little bit more uh, I don't know a little bit uh, less dire than it was last month. So I guess we'll see what happens. What are you seeing, Peter? Absolutely. Actually, I just got home. I was doing some showings, and uh, I
2: had about. Ten places booked to see, and then we only ended up with I'm going to say four, just because uh, you know a couple were going into multiples on day one. So um, yeah, uh, definitely. Again, those months of inventory is low, and uh, anything that's got some kind of value, I think like sellers are pricing. They're seeing uh, they're they're coming down to, to the level in terms of where they should be, and there's there's a bid there. So uh, yeah, I'm wondering it's been, if
0: it's um, like. If it's like what's happening, kind of like what's happening in the mortgage market, like it seems like you know we've seen a period of time at least where you know we're at we're at like the variable side is is where people are impacted by by rate hikes and you know generally the economy like the economic picture is kind of impacted by rate hikes, but the fixed side is now at least on the posted on a posted basis more compelling than than a variable. So you know, maybe people are going the fixed route, right. And saying, yeah, okay, maybe I'll. And so, so buyers are, you know, I guess with a fix a, a buyer is relatively more urgent than a variable. Cause if you're a variable buyer, you are going to stomach the change in interest rate regardless. So you don't really need to worry about when you're going to buy. But if you're, if you're a fixed buyer, you kind of want to buy while the rate is where it is. Right. Um, I know I've seen two, two lenders drop on the fixed side rates today, I think, um, so I, I, I guess we'll see what happens, but it's just interesting to see that there's actually some, some, some volume happening. I'm going to try and pull up some of the broker based stats just to see if it looks like the market is, is kind of telling the same story, um, but, but it's interesting anyway. How are things looking in the, in the pre-con side here? I see we got, uh, got Ryan from Rare here too, I sent him a speaker request, but, but how are things there, Jordan and Mark?
1: Uh, slow, dead slow, but yeah, let's get Ryan on a lot more insights as well. Um, but yeah, no, it's slow, man. It it does depend on product type. Like I will say, we're still moving a lot of end user units. The larger units are moving quite well. In fact, even in the pool of assignments, I have currently listed the higher priced, larger units with the nice views. Those are the ones that are actually getting more interest quicker. So it seems to be the same story I told last time, which was like, uh, three, four weeks ago, which was essentially that investors are playing the wait and see game um, where end users are still active, obviously upsizing, downsizing, that type of thing. Um, developers, I'm sure some of them are struggling to hit their sales targets, but also others are not right. You have Harbor walk by Tridel did quite well. You have eight Elm also did quite well. Um, and eight Elm wasn't cheap by any means, you know, 17, 16, 1700 a foot. So it depends on the product type. Um, but, uh, by and large, a lot slower than it was back in January, February, obviously, um, and then you have you know you have some developers launching at prices that frankly I, I wasn't anticipating and took me kind of uh, off guard. So for example, Matami launched West Bend um, on Blur Street there at a price that honestly I don't even know how they can afford to launch at. Like if you look at what they paid for the land versus what they're launching at, there's no way there's any profit in that deal. And it's probably just to keep the machine running and people employed and that kind of thing and, and keep keep the wheels moving. And you know, Madammy obviously has. Um, bondholders in New York as well so it's to keep them satisfied that the Canadian market is good but but anyways my point is they kind of set a new floor because they came in at 1300 foot on product that I think could have easily been 1400 a foot or at least 1400 a foot is where you achieve sort of 15 percent profit margin so that's kind of really interesting because I would think that that pissed off a lot of other developers in the industry who are now looking at that going well we can't launch at those prices because the numbers just the performance doesn't make sense Um, yeah so uh, long, long story short is Assignment market is absolutely brutal. I think it'll get worse before it gets better. If you're a buyer who's looking for a good deal, definitely the assignment market is the way to go. You can pick up units at their 2018, 2019 prices today. Um, and uh, if you're looking for something that's kind of large um, on the pre-construction side, those units are still moving quite well. Um, so the downsizer product, the luxury boutique product, those people uh, mostly paying cash and not really overly concerned and they're still buying. So that's what I have. Yeah, I'll, I'll, Thanks, I'll, ju- I'll,
3: I'll jump in. So before I before yep. I say anything, Daniel, I want to do one thing that I've, I've wanted to do every single time we've had a Spaces and I never do it and I'm going to do it right at the beginning so I don't get off saying, oh, God, I forgot to do it again. I just want to thank you for putting these things together. I know none of us ever get the chance to do this, but everyone I know uh, listens to these things, gets so much from them. You're selfless when you do it and you just launch right in and there's never an opportunity to thank you. So I just wanted to take a second before I launch into my own spiel and just tell you. How much we all
0: appreciate it. Um, yeah, thanks, man. I so, mean, I mean, uh, it's it's actually it, I'm, I am relatively selfish. Like this is in pursuit of my own knowledge too. Like, and uh, I figured, why not? Uh, I just hate redundancy. So if I'm if I'm learning and aggregating information from a bunch of good people, uh, I'd rather just share that with everybody. So it's it's you know I, I get a lot from it as well. And so thank all of you. I couldn't do it with, with everybody else who's here. So I, yeah, I'm glad. To, I'm more than happy so, to do it pleasure.
3: Totally. Well, well. Thank you again. And now, 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 that I've now that I've buttered you up a bit, let's let's talk about some of the uh, some of the bad news and then uh, some of the rays of sunshine. So first off, to the um, to the uh, first point that you made, that things seem to be, um, I guess, de log jamming and uh, breaking out. I, I agree. I'm seeing that. I'm seeing more deals come into my office, certainly in the last month. But I am tempered by the realization that. Uh, November is always, I I chart uh, our volumes as they come in, and I used to do that with access law all the time. I'm acutely aware that November and May are the spike months. And so to the degree that we're comparing this to October may not necessarily account for the fact that November and October historically are very different months. Uh, This is the pre-Christmas rush. We're in the midst of things. And so the fact that we're seeing activity um, I, I'm, I need it delineated as to, to what degree is seasonal, uh, volumes that are starting to kick in versus a true change in market condition. Um, I don't know that I've seen a huge amount of new interest and actually over the past three weeks, I'll tell you volumes really kind of flew off of a cliff for most lawyers. Many of our lawyers that I'm speaking to, I made a post about this recently some of them are uh, everyone is starting to lay off staff um there are a lot of smaller firms that really don't know how they're going to survive things are looking quite dire keeping in mind of course that you know law firms aren't exactly on the cutting edge of the market they sometimes get these deals two three weeks after after they consummate um so we may just be dealing with the october realization now through the firm system um that's the resale primarily. I mean, we're of course seeing that the new construction continues amiss um, and more and more product is now finally hitting the market. The builder strike having been fully cleared. Uh, what that means practically as Jordan said is that the assignment market is in full bore because people uh, who were never expecting to have to encounter these interest rates are now being forced into closing positions. Uh, my office is replete with people who cannot uh, close and who are looking to take haircuts. Haircuts are the order of the day uh, in the new build assignment space. Um, And as a result, as Jordan mentioned, this is a time for great deals. Uh, Though what my my own, and this is just a guess, my own guess is that this downswing will exist uh, for quite a few months going into the spring and we'll likely get worse before it gets better. I don't think that this is a hugely long-term opportunity. If you're thinking of buying, buying in the near term is probably in order, but waiting until February, March, certainly, I think you'll, see, you'll still see the same conditions exist, um, given that the longevity of higher interest rates is now upon us and has settled in. Uh, in terms of um, the only other thing that I'd mention, uh, and then I'll turn the floor back, is that um, part of being a lawyer is that you're often approached by a whole bunch of people who have different interests. And one of the things that we are seeing now, or one of the things I've encountered in my office is a whole bunch of trades who are twiddling their thumbs. Uh, Trades for the first time in years are um, seeing contracts go idle. I'm watching, I just actually dealt with a machine storage contract in my office where they were putting aside construction equipment um and shelving it um for a period of six months um uh, because uh they were not busy and i've never seen that happen um and to that end uh there will be uh, downward pricing pressure placed on the trades which will obviously affect the construction costs and the ability to deliver product at better pricing uh, so I would just mention that the pain that we're starting to experience in perhaps a general recession or who knows what we're in, but I think that that I think it's fair to say that we're probably there now uh, is now affecting the trades and that is affecting the pricing and it's affecting the contracting of the builders and they're getting better pricing and eventually that will translate into um, the pricing that the consumers see
1: at the end of the day. I just want to jump in on that note because I think it's also worth noting that despite and I think I think that's true and I, it might even start seeing that reflected in land values eventually but uh, I, I in certain areas like 416 for example 49% increase in development fees will kind of negate that so it's really interesting to see how the city of Toronto is almost putting a floor on, um, on pre construction prices in a way with the never ending increasing hiking fees.
3: Yeah, they're, they're making it utterly impossible. Utterly impossible. I mean, the, the cost of new build, it's, it's so... At the, I, I know I'm speaking to the converted here. Every, every person understands what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyways, because I do enjoy the sound of my own voice. Uh, it's so antithetical to their interests to have taxes placed on new development when they make so much money from the long-term longevity of municipal taxes get more product into the market and you have a long-term tax base that you can actually tax. Uh, to to place it and to stymie new build development through upfront taxes is shooting yourself in the foot long-term. Um, and that we can't realize that and that we can't seemingly collectively do something about that is all to our collective shame.
0: It's interesting though, like, I mean, like Toronto is, is a city that uh, the reason, I mean, you could presume just economically, the reason that they would do that is so that you know people with four to ten million dollar homes in in you know, certain suburban Toronto neighborhoods can get away with paying the lowest uh, mill rate in you know in in the province uh, you know the lowest annual like yeah I mean yeah there's annual tax revenue but we do have really really low property tax revenues and and the city of Toronto I mean it, it's interesting because everyone's like oh like volume's so low in the Canadian real estate market um and for the past couple of months it's like well switching costs are insane like especially in the city of Toronto you have twice the land transfer tax like you have you have provincial land transfer tax and you have municipal land transfer tax so the the city of Toronto has an incentive for values to be high because they tax in in the transaction um and and I think that I, it's just like from my perspective I don't you know you hear a lot of people who are you know more qualified than myself on on policy and planning and stuff like that but I don't know how you ever like transfer that burden from the pipeline to the existing housing supply.
3: Well, if I may, um, I I have an answer to that. Um, The way taxation works, and I know you guys know this, but just for the benefit of everyone on channel is through the mill rate and the mill rate, it's a basic multiplication. It's the mill rate, which in Toronto, I believe is point what is it, something ridiculous, 0.57 or whatever it may be, which is like 30 points lower than anywhere else, multiplied by the assessed value of MPAC. Over the course of many years, because rising real estate values um, have effectively netted more per house because everyone's house has been going up massively, the city of Toronto has actually been able to reduce its mill rate every single year. The problem with politicians is that they can't be seen to raise taxes, to raise the mill rate, but over the past several years, because real estate was going up so quickly, they had the opportunity to both lower the mill rate, but if they did it at a slower rate, they could have ultimately netted or appeared to still lower the mill rate while netting more in tax revenue from the broad based public and use that extra revenue in order to f- reduce the amount that is required for the upfront capital of development fees. But that opportunity.
4: I, I'm, I'm done.
0: Okay. I, I lost you there for a second. I, I missed what you said at the end there. But um, but Peter, you had your hand up. Do you want to jump in here?
2: Yeah. To, to Mark's point on, on shooting themselves in the foot, it, it just made me trigger. I was looking at Ben's, um, the, the statement of operations he posted on the city of Toronto. And when you look at development charges and, and municipal land transfer, you're looking at, you know, it's like, I think it's four times as much the, the, the their land transfer over development fees. So like, it makes sense. Just, you know, lower the fees, get more supply to the market and take advantage of the tax and the land transfers on top of all those additional units. So uh, I think it's like 10% of the budget too.
0: I think there are, there's two different budgets though. And maybe I'll see if I can pull Greg in here, but I think that there's like um, operational like funding that comes from, um, uh, from the the municipal tax or like, so like I guess the, the tax revenue and then there's, I don't know if it's – I don't remember what it – but it has to go to, like, capital projects, like CapEx, so, like, infrastructure, et cetera, parkland allocation. Like, those are literally allocated for specific things, right? Um, I'll I'll see if I can – I'll send Greg maybe a speaker request. I think he probably knows a little bit better than I do. I just don't want to speak on a turn there. But, uh, um, Mark, I have a curiosity, and maybe we'll try and jump to uh, to Adam and Ryan here. But um, uh, are you – I know you see, like, a lot of – the, I guess condo certificates you guys were doing um, are you seeing like is are we seeing a slowing in the resale market because I, I and I, I do have a couple guys jumping on here later um, specifically in the resale side and if anybody in the audience is listening and, and wants to share an anecdote or something about what's happening in the um, in the resale side I'd love to hear it so just send a, a speaker request but um, are you seeing anything that indicates change in the resale sidebar
3: oh totally I mean so so I run legal review which is um a service that we that used to get about 10 to 15 statuses a day for review uh i I don't need to go in in, and promote it but basically it's about status certificate review so if you wanted to bring a clean offer you use legal review and that's it and that fell to about two units per day from about 10 to 15 that we were getting now a good reason for that is because legal review has a lot of value to people when they're trying to bring an unconditional offer Conditional offers are back, legal review is not as important to agents. And so a good deal of the drop is that. But separate and apart from that, in my office, um, I chart how many reviews I do a month because I save them. And so it's an easy data point. And I can tell you I'm down from last year at this time, from last year, October's month, because I only charted October, I was down 80%. I did 80% less status reviews than I did last October. So, if you're wondering uh, what what happened in October in the resale market, in the condo resale market, that's probably a pretty accurate assessment um, given uh, that we do about
0: usually in October about a hundred deals a month. Interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, try and pull up some stats on the habitat, maybe and just see uh-huh. if if that tracks. But it, I mean, it seems pretty on par with. I think October across all um, property types, you know, October of last year would have been ninety three hundred transactions on TREB and in uh, October of this year was about forty seven hundred across all all product types. So I'll, I'll I'll switch it over to condo and I'll post the chart um, to put it in the nest. Yeah, um, Adam and Ryan. Sorry, go ahead, Mark. Yeah.
3: Sorry, one, one last thing. What Jordan said, I am experiencing as well. I just want to reiterate one thing he said at the beginning. Um, the vast majority of people who we used to do status reviews for were $500 to $750,000 condos, intro product, uh, young home buyers, investors. Um, all of the people who we are engaging with are um, usually people who are much more sophisticated, have more money and are buying more expensive product. So I just want to throw that out there as well, both when considering statuses and considering the general state of the market. I think it's just because uh, first time homebuyers. Investors and everyone else are scared to be Jesus, whereas other people who are investing are doing so purposefully with, with end use in mind.
0: And I guess, like, probably a more luxury market, uh, a little bit less rate dependent, perhaps. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Ryan or Adam, do you want to um, add any insight here on what either of you are seeing happening in the, in the condo market in Toronto, either on the resale side or on the pre construction side?
5: Go ahead, Adam. Go ahead. Okay. I I I, I thought I saw him coming off uh, mute, but no, yeah. So, so 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 from my perspective, first of all, hello to everyone. Um, I'm Ryan. I uh, I specialize in pre-construction. This is actually my first uh, Twitter Space ever. Um, so not not a pro by any means. Um, but very excited to to listen to to everyone here today. Um, from my perspective, I kind of share Jordan's notion um, on the pre-construction market specifically, which is where I kind of spend and observe most of my time. Uh, market is, you know, obviously definitely slower. Uh, we are seeing some some success in certain projects, but to me, right now, success uh, really depends on two major factors. If you have one or the other, you can still find some relative success in, in this market. And I say relative deliberately because, you know success in this market is very different than success in March this year. Um, those two factors, in my opinion, are either a A location on major transit in the downtown core, uh, which was exemplified in 8 Elm, uh, and I'll talk about that in more detail in a moment. Uh, and the second and the second big driver of deals right now is a really favorable, aggressive deposit structure, which is what we've seen in other projects that have done well in the last few months, Adam um, in Pickering, in uh, a Daniels project. And now we've seen Madamemi come out with a very aggressive uh, deposit structure where you get to put ten percent down for a new launch. Uh, for a building that's going to be ready in about four years, that's all you're tying up till occupancy. And traditionally, that was 15 in the last year and a half or two, and before that, it was 20. percent So, uh, favorable deposit structure, if you have that, or you have a AAA location, and you know, um, when I say AAA location, it has to be something that really appeals to. Uh, the Asian consumer because the Asian consumers are still out there if you have AAA locations on on hand and that's what Elm has experienced and again it's not like a home run success, it's just re- success that's relative to this market um, and so um, if you don't have any of these elements um, you your launches right now I'm observing have literally a shelf life that expands that expands exactly two weekends and if you haven't been able to put a huge dent in your inventory in the first two weekends of sales the air comes right out of the balloon and there's not much left after that and the the sales teams have to work really hard to to get deals and so um i'm very optimistic that. I mean, in my nature, I would say I try to remain optimistic about it all turning around, hopefully, you know, within the next few months. Um, but I, uh, I will continue to watch it closely and, and happy to share my thoughts on these spaces as, um, as they come up.
1: Ryan, just a quick question here. Would it be fair to, to kind of say, like, a success on a launch today would be like you know, 40, 50%. Whereas the previous definition of launch success would be like you know, 70, 80% construction financing. And then it's kind of a grind from there.
0: Ryan, I don't know if, um, did you did you catch that? Or I didn't hear a response there, so.
5: No, sorry, I totally lost it. So I, I didn't hear anything there for yeah, a second. Yeah,
0: yeah. Jordan was basically asking um, if a success today would be considered like a 40%. Um, was it 40% Jordan? And then basically kind of a grind yeah, like after a, that. Yeah, 40 50% of
4: the solar, uh, I think. In that's a good
5: question. I think most that. most developers out there right now uh, who are launching, and and we still are seeing launches, right? Like we've seen about 15 launches in the last seven weeks. So there's still some activity. It's not. It's just not your typical uh, you know, September, October, November level of activity as far as launches go, but there's still product coming to market. I think most developers that I speak to and, and I speak to developers and sales teams pretty often have adjusted their expectations of what success looks like in a launch. 40% in the first two or three weeks of sales, uh, if you could firm that up, I think most developers will will take that today. Um, With the understanding that, you know, kind of the other critical mass that gets you through to the construction loan threshold, which is the additional 30, 35%, you know, if you could get there within, you know, the first four to six months, I think most developers would be very happy with that outcome. But that is just, it's not the reality that we're seeing, right? Like, Elm is an outside, you know, Elm is... Uh, an outlier. And keep in mind, they've just announced that they've uh, that they sold uh, 500 units out of a project that's that's about um, 850 units. So they really hit about 60% sold. They really need to get to about 70 or 75 to, to get started there, unless the developers is, are prepared to put more equity. Um, you know, the the other projects that I mentioned with the deposit structure, obviously, Daniels is really really capitalized, and, and in Pickering, there's kind of the equity to tap into from the first phase of that project. Um, but uh, but yeah, most developers will will not be seeing that unless the market really turns around because because there are still so many launches, and I know there's a huge backlog of launches that you know developers are really getting. Kind of itchy, you know, getting a an itchy finger on the trigger, really wanting to roll product out to the market in January, just hoping for some for some good news to be able to do that comfortably. Um, I don't I don't really see how most sites could get to seventy percent sold within four to six months without uh, without the market changing.
0: Is there any? Indication that things would be loosening on on the construction financing side, like to make accommodations for some of these massive um, changes that have happened in, in the absorption environment. Like, and I don't know if I don't know if you can answer that question, but it, and to me, it makes sense. Yeah. Like, if you're talking about well capitalized players like the Daniels or the Matamis or whatever, where they don't really necessarily rely on hitting a seventy five percent uh, pre construction target threshold because they don't really need to. To they, they probably can can get alternative financing or come up with the equity necessary to start to, like to get to constr- construction. And to them, it might be the, it might make sense economically. If you are a Daniels or a Mattamy where you're running a massive machine and you want to keep the machine moving and you can, you can lock in at, yeah, maybe a little bit below what you w- would have hoped to get by launching today. But you know, maybe you're going to save yourself 20 or 30% on construction next year. Um, because the construction market's loosening, as Mark mentioned, like is that kind of the the, the strategy that we're starting to see happening there? And is this are, are we looking at? Are we kind of staring down the barrel of um, construction financing grinding to a halt? So really, the well-capitalized players taking over, like almost like a K-shaped recovery, or this disparity that will evolve where the big players will will emerge victorious, and a lot of the smaller guys are going to potentially get hurt.
5: Uh, and that, another great another great observation so I, i've I've had a conversation with you know one of the leading um, cost analyzers for constr- on the construction side in the city. Your question really has two two kind of main components to it. number one is how will uh, construction pricing evolve and number two is how will uh, the banks react to um to a softer market and so from a construction perspective i know i've heard someone mention before that uh, it looks like it's slowing down obviously it is housing starts are dropping uh, because we're you know the market itself is not absorbing the units with in the same velocity that it has before uh, so now the way the way this cost analyzer described it to me is you actually get trades to call you back which is a you know very encouraging um, he's expecting construction rates to, you know, stabilize or maybe dr- drop slightly, uh, but by no means, you know, kind of going back, uh, you know, 20 percent below where they were, um, you know, a few months ago. Uh, but that is that in itself is great news. Just seeing construction uh, pricing stabilizing is really, really great news for the development industry. its uh, It's been long overdue. Sorry, Mark, you're trying to jump in? Well,
3: I was just gonna say stabilization in an era of 7% CPI means falling.
5: Yeah, that's true when you account for inflation, definitely, but uh, I think there's still gonna be some kind of inflationary component built into escalations in, in pricing. But um, from, from the developer's perspective is if they could see, you know, hard costs hitting X and not really moving for a while, that's really great news, right, uh, for them. Secondly, is the banks, the banks are really conservative. And when the market is tightening, um, they're, not, they're not feeling more comfortable to make it less difficult to obtain, you know, hundreds of million dollars in, in uh, construction loans. So I don't think we're going to see the the banks changing their philosophy there, unless unless uh, I'm not talking about the Madamis and, and the Daniels, but unless the developers uh, in question have very strong covenants in place, long-standing relationships, uh, they may be able to you know take it down from depending on the site like, but high-rise sites that generally like they may take it down from seventy percent revenues sold to maybe sixty. Um, not, not, major, and most developers still won't be able to benefit from that. And yes, you know, smaller developers are going to find themselves in a tough spot, uh, and we're seeing that already, where developers are, you know, walking away from sites or trying to bring in a, a, a strong JV partner to help carry them through this this cycle, uh, or just um, looking for someone to take over their sites altogether. So we're seeing all of that happening right now. Uh, throughout the GTA.
0: Yeah, just from where I stand, I I have seen, and I've mentioned this on a couple of spaces, like I've seen quite a bit of deleveraging happening in the smaller uh, development space. A lot of guys were just, you know, I I think cheap capital makes people want to grow at a pace that just isn't sustainable. We've seen that in the crypto space. We've seen it in the real estate space on uh, you know, on the on the end user speculation, and I think you know it's the the development space, especially the the small to mid cap development space, was not immune to it either. Um, I, I personally think that there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Like I think that you know capitalism comes with a little bit of Darwinistic tendencies, and I think the big big players are big for a reason. Um, but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful that it doesn't end up with with too much bloodshed. But I have heard of you know. Um, a lender who you know who I'm, who I'm quite close with who has taken quite a few projects in receivership some of which are public knowledge but um and uh and and i don't think they're anticipating that that's going to stop happening anytime soon um with the mid-cap developers so yeah. interested to so, see how that whole thing shakes out i think the big guys will be fine though i really do
5: yeah they'll they'll probably be able to weather the storm but but it's it's of like that in a lot of industries right now where when the tide goes out you you see who's been swimming naked and um you know it's 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 easy to prosper when the streets are paved with gold but then when when it kind of comes out you you realize it's uh it's really tough being a developer The, the risks are huge you know the personal guarantees are scary enough to make you lose a lot of sleep at night and uh and at in the tough times it's it's not easy to be you know a developer and so we're seeing our our personal clients you know like on the acquisition side we're now structuring deals where the financing condition is a huge part of the deal and very important because you know our clients that are looking at acquisitions who are sitting on cash or sitting on um, enough money to tie up really great sites are saying we want to make sure that the sellers are flexible enough to allow us to not close until banks are comfortable enough to start lending at least part of the the sale the sale price, and so we're seeing that on one end, and on the other end, we're seeing clients where that are showing us that they've hit their quote unquote for for uh, simplicity, I'll call it the trigger rate, where now they have to top up equity into a construction loan deal so that the bank continues to fund it. Because the rates have gone so high so fast, um, and now they're they're kind of offside with the bank unless they top up with equity.
0: Interesting note. Uh, interesting note, Ryan. Um, anything on uh, on the resale side that's worth noting, um, Adam or, or Jordan or anybody? Um, Jordan, I don't know if uh, if we can get maybe get Riley on here or something. But um, Peter has a couple questions as well. I Riley's, think about just uh, like kind of. Traveling
1: here in Mexico as well, so there's no way he's going to be... Still going. find him. <laughs> they, they I didn't realize mean, you were still down there. He's at the there.
2: bar. He's at the bar. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: That's not going to uh, happen. Adam probably knows more than me about the resale market okay. to be do
6: I, I, I don't. I, I'm going to have to jump off in just one minute. I just have some kids that need to be put to bed. But I will tell you, I noticed two things anecdotally this week that I thought were interesting. Uh, when you think about... The narrative that's going on in the market. One, I saw uh, three things that I saw. One was a $7 million house listed in Leaside sold in one day. And I saw a house in Forest Hill for $3.8 million uh, sold in one day. So I thought that that was interesting when you hear about a bad market. Um, I wouldn't suggest when things like that happen, it's a bad market, but uh, it's definitely a different market. And then I also had a realtor in my office. Um, he did six transactions this week and I asked them kind of how they were going and they were all done in multiple offerings. So what I'm, what I'm seeing is, um, believe it or not, I'm seeing the under price uh, create FOMO listing um, strategy still work, depending again, like Ryan said, on area and price. Um, and if you're not creating that, you're having a tough time selling. So I know agents... Uh, the public hates it. Other agents hate it, but it's still a strategy that's really um, continuing to work, even in a market like this. Um, also, we see even in multiple offers, we're not seeing, definitely not seeing, like what we did see before. Um, but you're you're still actually getting that firm trend, firm offer, um, and I think that weighs more today than it did before. So, if you have, let's say, in this particular example, we had six offers, four of which were conditional. Uh, Two of which were firm and the one that was the winner was obviously firm and a a very strong offer. So it's a different vibe than what we're seeing. But when I see things and I hear things like this, um, it does make me question a lot of things that we speak about, read about, and and hear. Because on the surface, you probably wouldn't think that this stuff is happening. But it is still kind of happening. So that was an interesting week. Yeah.
0: The underpricing piece is interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. Sorry, no, Daniel. Why don't you finish? Then I'll go jump in the. Yeah. Okay. As quickly on the underpricing piece. I mean, I think I always found it was funny because I've I've never really been a fan, fan of the strategy, but I mean, sometimes you have to do it out of desperation, and and I've had to. I've been put in positions where the market, you know, if you're if you're selling a product where the majority of agents that are showing that product um, are don't know also don't know how to price the product, like you you got to create create the situation for. For that, it's it's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I've I've had a problem with it since we're, you know, we were. So, I I think in in February, eighty seven percent of properties sold over asking price, and basically that went progressively down. I think it it was eighty four percent in March, dropped to like in seventy percent in April, and then it bottomed out at like in August at like twenty five percent. Since August, like since we kind of hit that, that I think that would be sort of the bottom. the last time that was kind of like when when prices stabilized, they stopped falling so much, and you could see the list price actually falling faster than the the app, than than the sold price. And basically, what happened was agents were just like, "Oh, like we can price discover too, and we'll just keep underpricing the market." And now, since August, you've seen the percentage of properties selling over asking price climbing on a pretty solid trend. It's up, you know, to twenty six percent, and now almost thirty percent in the last, uh, so far in November. Um, so basically agents are really just returning to, you know, the, the one trick pony style of, uh, of, of pricing, which is, it, yeah, just keep, keep undercutting the market. You know, right? It's fun. You know what, Dan, I, I don't, I don't
6: think, I, I do think now it's a little different where the goal might not be like, Oh my God, I sold it 30% over asking. I don't think that's kind of the point, but here, I'll just give you one, one small quick example. Um, one of these, one of my agents who is notorious for doing this believes in it strongly, um, only does it if you have a willing seller to, to do it because, as a seller, it is kind of an interesting a tactic. Um, but there was this condo listed at a central Toronto location. Um, it was listed for $750, sat on the market for 60 days. They received an offer for $710. Um, they didn't accept. Our agent takes it over and gives them this pitch that we want to price it at $499 and hold offers. Seller obviously thought it was crazy um, and ends up selling for $740 firm. So, it did it, did it necessarily like, you know, gain a million dollars over asking. I don't, I don't really think it was, but the point was it sat for 60 days. Didn't sell, um, created a whole ton of hype. Um, obviously there was agents that were angry. Why'd you price it so low? The seller took a time, like a lot, a lot of time to question the strategy as well. But the point is it's like, it's working. I think, I think the point that agents hate is first of all, it's a horrible process. Uh, being a buyer on that side is also a terrible process um as a seller it's nerve-wracking process until the final result but like toronto's been in a fomo market for i don't know forever it feels like and when you don't have that hype around a listing there's just no um like a lot of agents were saying you know there's nothing there i i see buyers they're kind of fading off and and i'm not pushing the strategy because it does not work everywhere and it needs to work in certain spots certain prices certain areas Uh, i'm just giving you total total uh, anecdotal last week's um, uh, observation Um, but it's it's working Uh, maybe back in February that would have sold 30 over asking and 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 that's not the case here it's actually getting it sold in a firm way um, and I guess it depends on the product but interesting to note I asked him this one question I said how many listings have you done this way in the last six months that worked and he said hundred percent and we're not talking about an agent who does like a deal every now and then we're talking about an agent who averages Two to three transactions a week. So it's interesting. It's interesting. It d- definitely doesn't work uh, everywhere. That's for sure.
0: So, Yeah. So first all, I, and Adam, I think I think the market is getting exhausted of it too. Go ahead, Mark, and then we'll get Gina in here. Go ahead. So
3: Adam, first, I'm going to insist that after this talk, you introduce me to the agent that's doing one or two deals a week in pure self interest. Um, but I'd also mention to you guys uh, something interesting about being a lawyer these days. Uh, you know, COVID did change the game for us, and it made us purely virtual across all of Ontario. And I know that we're all professionals, and so when someone says, I need something done, you say, I specialize in that area. Well, largely. And, and lawyers used to do that, too, but we were all somewhat restrained by geography. Lawyers really aren't anymore. We do our closings anywhere. It doesn't really make a difference. It's all virtual. Uh, and to that end, uh, we are noticing a huge discrepancy between discussions like this that we just heard, which are very real in urban core and suburban core um, and uh, rural uh, which we now have uh, active eyes on because frankly all of us are doing deals everywhere. Um, There are areas, this is a discussion that is privileged. Um, It's privileged to be in an urban area, it's privileged to be in urban downtown Toronto or in these areas that can still maintain these bidding wars. Uh, That reality doesn't exist in much of Ontario. Uh, Indeed, there are areas that are simply depressed um, and we are seeing that in our office all the time. So it's interesting because we're having a discussion that really is uh, one that is divorced from a larger reality that I see in so many other areas in the province, though not the city um, and not the urban core, by the way, of Mississauga um, and to some degree Vaughn um, all of that is true and all of this is is accurate. I, I just wanted to point that out because I think it's a distinction worth noting, especially as we're trying to chart where we're going as a community that community is larger than just that urban core, although certainly most of the people are located there anyways. Um, so I, I, I just wanted to I wanted to call everyone's attention to that to that point and and to tell you that a lot of the depression and a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the fire sales and a lot of the power of sales that I'm now seeing engaged in uh, are not in these urban centers, but rather on the
0: periphery. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I mean, I, I'm seeing something similar, um, and I can I can break out the data that I just described. Like, I, I would say, and, I'm, and that's what I'm especially curious to understand what's happening in the condo market because I know that you know when we were seeing, I think it kind of lagged what was happening, like the the extreme recoil that was happening in the suburban markets. Um. You know, I think everybody saw that coming, except maybe the people who were who were rushing into that product um, at the at the top. But um, it it all made sense. It made sense based on the micro, you know, the reurbanization of the workplace, um, and it made sense in the macro that that rate the rates were going to go up, and those were markets that were becoming very credit tapped. Um, but but I think that um, I think that you know the the thesis the whole time that when we were having arguments about whether or not COVID was going to destroy the real estate market at the beginning, especially when it was about, you know, what's going to happen to the central business district was a lot of people were saying, well, the core will always be okay. And I don't know if I necessarily believe that thesis really for, for a good portion of, of the period of time during COVID. And, and I, I've been to more, um, more events, more like conferences and stuff in the past, uh, past couple of months than i had probably in, in like the year prior to covid like and so i it's just interesting to, to me to see that the city actually coming back with with a lot of life a surprising amount and i think people i i'm 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 bought, personally buying into the thesis that people did miss this this shit and and that that people do want to be shoulder to shoulder on a lot of this stuff and so i'm interested to see how the whole thing shapes out and that's why i i the condo market does interest me a lot because i think that it's both entry level, like it represents the entry level, you know it represents investors, it represents uh, first time buyers, very, a lot of people first on the, on the um, housing ladder, but it also represents the urban environment. So um, what you're saying, Mark, I would agree like where you're seeing entry level product outside of the cities in a lot of cases getting smoked, totally smoked. Um, the city does seem to, to to be surprisingly resilient in in some cases and a lot of that maybe is, is predicated on that construction costs kind of flooring the market and eventually creating supply constriction but just interested in the, the, the the difference is interesting uh,
3: I've, always, wanna, I've always do you want to do
0: you want to just in. finish that thought yeah, yeah go ahead mark yeah and then we'll jump over to sorry the... no
3: no no. you know what I'm, I'm monopolizing please so there's other people
0: here who who have a lot to say yeah all right, all right yeah um gina do you want to jump in here and then we'll just keep the conversation going
7: yeah, no worries. I just wanted to to uh, circle back to what Adam was saying with regards to the uh, strategy of listing listing lower and uh, and you know getting multiple offers. Um, and and again, I work in the core in the east end of Toronto, like EO one, just east of the the DVP. So that that strategy has always worked and it is working. What what we are seeing right now in our area is that. Um, We are like there was a couple of properties that I showed last week that did get multiple offers. They got one of them got four offers. The other one got six offers and both of them. um, One of them actually went completely off the market because they didn't get their target number. And then the other one relisted for uh, obviously a much higher number. And it's been sitting there for a couple of weeks now. So um, which is surprising again for the area, because like you were saying, Dan, that the core typically you know holds up and all that sort of stuff but th- there are these things that we're seeing and yes of course in in certain product uh they are getting decent numbers again not anything spectacular but maybe you know 100 or 150 over asking with a firm offer um, but i just wanted to sort of bring that side in where it is sometimes it backfires and it it really doesn't uh it doesn't work out the way that uh, sellers and agents wanted to work D-
6: Dan, do you mind if i just jump in quick before i before I yeah go, ahead. go ahead for question. sure yeah um gina to- totally agree uh totally agree with what you said um i was just giving these examples i, I have examples too where this doesn't work um this agent in particular is a big um believer in like drastically underpricing it um i i never was a fan either you know his, his argument with proof behind it is that it works so you know and it also depends on the seller you need to have a seller I, i've also seen cases exactly like what you just brought up where um it, it's almost a little bit of greed where the seller has false expectations of what happens during these quote unquote multiple offers um and they don't really get their price and then they try and relist it um, and then it kind of sits we call that you know ends up being a stale listing but uh, I actually I, I totally agree this this doesn't always work um, I, I do believe there will be a time where we'll look back at this um, this this strategy and, and laugh how we were actually allowed to do this uh, legally and and com- and and in compliance uh, because it's it's I mean I've bought my house under under these circumstances before and it's it's totally a horrible experience uh, when you're blindly bidding and if the agent on the other end is, is compliant, the, they actually can't tell you anything. So, uh, just, just to wrap up my thoughts, I, I just think that, um, and I, I am specifically speaking about the core, um, uh, and, and kind of where we mostly trade for now, but we're just, you know, when we hear about these things, when you see a $7 million house selling a day, a $4 million house selling a day, uh, on Tuesday, we had 35 offers on a property um like all of these things happening i am not uh out there telling people that the market is uh, incredible because that's just not the case the point is that there are certain pockets and there are certain product at certain price points and in certain parts of the city where we're just not feeling it as opposed to other pockets and it's very very
0: uh interesting to see yeah i think it is um from my perspective, like from just from a strategy perspective, I think the longer as an industry that we allow it to to perpetuate, the closer we get to. I, I think it just makes it super accessible to technology to come and like disrupt. Like all you really need to do is know how to not price a house properly, and then just like list it. to You know, I mean, like you look at the Australia model. right? if you are gonna do a bid, if you you know you are gonna do a bid, then uh, then it, you might as well make it an open bid, right? And I think the government has, admit, you know, that the the Trudeau government. On, I think on their platform said that they were going to open the bid. I don't, I don't, they haven't made a meaningful effort to do it since, since that platform. But um, regardless, it's been mentioned. So I'm interested to see how that whole thing shakes out. It's less of a conversation now because the market kind of solved itself for it, but we are seeing it start to ramp up slowly. So I'm curious to see um, what it means to go down that, that road. Um, anybody else want to add anything here before we, uh, before we kind of wrap up, I, I mean, I think we've, we it was probably more pre-construction than I anticipated. Um, I was hoping to get a little bit more into the, the resale, what was happening in the resale market as well. But I, I'm, I'm really happy with the with the conversation. I think it added a lot of insight into what's going on. Um, definitely nice to hear, uh, you know, from a listing agent on the condo side as well. Uh, Ryan, like just interesting to to get an idea for for how a lot of the developers are, are analyzing the ebbs and flows that we're seeing in the market as well. Um, Shiraz, did you want to chime in here before we uh, before we started to wrap up? I know you came in here as a speaker. Going to take that as a no. Um, anybody else want to um, inject anything before we uh, before we wrap up here? Okay. I guess we'll leave it. Um, everybody have a, a good long weekend and maybe a, a blend into your week for those of you who uh, whose, whose kids are out of school next week. Um, and uh, we'll see you again next Thursday.
4: Thanks for doing this, Dan. Thanks, Thank everybody. Thank you, as always, Dan. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Thank you.